Welcome to River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we strive to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Chords, molds, and Play-Doh give insight into two imperatives that Paul urges every believer to incorporate into their act of worship. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship, go to rfamarillo.org. Amen. Let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the first couple of uh, passages there. Very familiar passages. While you're turning there, um, let me just say that this past Wednesday night, we had our prayer service at our new location, and it was such a sweet time. Uh, it, was just a, it was just a great time. And we have our prayer service. It used to be the Wednesday after the first Sunday, but we're changing it to the first Wednesday because it gets too confusing the other way. So the first Wednesday of every month, uh, we will have our prayer service at 6.30, and now we'll be doing it at our new location. Uh, so if you're available, I, I encourage you to be a part of that. That is where the battle is fought. That is where the battle is won. Uh, and that's high priority for us. So it's a, such a sweet time. I hope you can participate from month to month. Well, let's look at Romans chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your spiritual act of worship, or this is your reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In these two verses, we see two imperatives. In each verse, has an imperative. Verse one's imperative is that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. The imperative in verse two is that we would stop being conformed and start being transformed. So I just wanna walk through these two imperatives with you this morning and see what God's spirit will teach us. The first one, imperative number one, is that we would be living sacrifices. This is obviously a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system but there are some very marked differences between the Old Testament system and this passage regarding us. Number one, the Old Testament dealt with animals. And this, obviously, is speaking to us as humans. In the Old Testament, secondly, the, the sacrifice was killed. It was dead. But here he's talking about being a living sacrifice and living for Jesus Christ. In fact, that phrase, living sacrifice, living, it talks about living a life. And it uses the word sacrifice but for me, it's more the concept of an offering because it says offer your bodies. Now, in, in Scripture, the words offering and sacrifice kind of became synonymous, even though there's a little bit of a nuanced difference. In sacrifice, it's more about giving up something, but offering is giving something. And so this is talking more about giving God something rather than giving up something for God, being a living sacrifice. In other words, he's talking about offering ourselves to God. Offering myself in service and ministry for Christ. It's not really talking about dying for Christ. Sometimes I think we think the hardest thing we can do is to die for Christ. I'm not sure that's true. For me, the hardest thing is living for Christ <laughs> every day. 
And that's what this is saying, that we would offer ourselves and be a living sacrifice. So the implication here is that we would give our life in ministry and service for whatever Christ calls us to. Our vision statement has four parts to it. We desire everyone to experience God, to exalt Christ, to embrace community, and to engage the world. And this is talking a lot about this fourth part, that we would be used by God to engage the world. Say, God, whatever you want to do with me and through me, I'm available. It's interesting um, that at times, the Old Testament sacrifice would be, would be bound, would be tied up by cords. And I'm not sure what all the implication for that is, but just in my mind, I wonder if it's because the sacrifice didn't always want to be a sacrifice. You know, before they actually killed the animal, the animal may be fighting and not really wanting to be a sacrifice, so they have to tie the sacrifice up so that the sacrifice will remain a sacrifice. Here's another marked difference between then and now. We can still be tied up by cords, but it's not so that we will remain a sacrifice, but it's that we can actually become a sacrifice. Some of us have cords wrapped around us that are hindering us from being a living sacrifice for God. So what are some of those cords that we can get tied up with? Well, I think there's several. One's what I'll call the cord of fear. This cord of fear can grip us, which keeps us from being that sacrifice that God's calling us to. We see this, I think, in Exodus chapters three and four. It's the story of Moses. Most of us know the story well. This is the part where um, Moses encounters God at the burning bush, and God is calling Moses to deliver God's people out of Egypt. So as soon as God begins that call, what does Moses do? Immediately, he starts excuses. And his very first excuse is in chapter three, verse 11. And I think all of these excuses are based on fear. His very first excuse when God says, this is what I want you to do, he says, well, who am I? <laughs> Translation is, I'm a nobody. I'm nobody special. I don't have the gift mix for this. I don't have the skill set for this. I have no ability. I am totally inadequate. In other words, what he's expressing here is the fear of inadequacy. God, you're calling me to do something, but I'm inadequate to do this. In chapter four, verse 10, we see that he says that I'm slow of speech and tongue. God's saying, hey, this is what I want you to say to the people of Israel. And he says, I'm slow of speech and tongue. In other words, God, I don't speak very well. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna know what to say. I'm not gonna know how to say it. It's not gonna come out right. I'm gonna stammer and stutter all over myself. It, I, I can't do this. And now he's experiencing the fear of failure. God, I can't do this. But his fear of failure is based on his fear of inadequacy. What he's saying is, I'm inadequate to do this, and now I'm just afraid I'm going to fail, and I'm not going to be able to do this. Chapter 4, verse 1, he finally says, what if they don't believe me? When God says, hey, I want you to say this and this and this, he says, God, what if they don't believe me? Translation, what if they oppose me? What if they attack me? <laughs> what if they challenge me? What if they ignore me? What if they won't do what I'm saying? Now we see him experiencing the fear of opposition. So Moses has all of these excuses when God's calling him, as it were, to be a sacrifice. We see him experiencing all these different types of fear. He's gripped in fear. Let me ask you a question. 
Can you associate with these? Have you ever experienced the fear of inadequacy, the fear of failure, the fear of opposition? I have all the time. But you know what the good news in this story is? In the midst of all of these fear, fears, God comes and he, he addresses every excuse and reminds Moses that it's not about him, it's about God. When, when Moses says, who am I? God responds, he said, it doesn't matter who you am because I am the great I am. When he says, God, I don't, I don't have the power to do this. I can't speak. I don't have the, the power. I'm going to fail. What does he do? He gives him his staff. And he says, this staff is my power. And as long as you're connected and using my power, you don't have to worry about failure. In the grip of opposition, when he says, what if they don't do this? God reminds him that I'm going to be with you every step of the way. He even brings Aaron alongside as a human person that can help him. So in every excuse... God reminds him, Moses, it's not about you. It's about me. It's not your power. It's my power. Moses, you're not going to have to do this. <laughs> I'm going to do this. All I need for you to be is a living sacrifice and offer yourself to me. There's two great principles in this story when God's calling you to be a living sacrifice, when he's calling you to do something for him. There's two great principles to remember. Number one, God doesn't always call the equipped, but he always equips the called. You feel like you're inadequate? Join the club. Because you are inadequate to do what God calls you to do. But God will equip you with everything that you need to fulfill what he's called you to. And here's the second principle. God will see you through what he calls you to. God will see you through everything that he calls you to. He won't leave you out there by yourself. He won't throw you in the deep end of the pool and just watch you sink and watch you drown. Whatever he calls you to, he will see you through that. So you don't have to worry about the court of fear. Don't let the fear keep you from being the sacrifice. There's another cord, though, that can hinder some of us from being a living sacrifice. It's what I'll call the cord of focus. We could call it preoccupation. Uh, we could say focusing on other things, if you will. In Matthew 13, we see the parable of the sower. And in the parable, the sower is throwing out this seed and it's, it's falling on different types of soil. And some of the seed bears fruit, some of the seed doesn't bear fruit. Later in the chapter, Jesus um, explains the parable to the disciples. And he says, the seed's the word of God. It's the message of God. It's what God's calling us to do and to be. And, and the soil is, is, is different types of people and how they respond to that. And some of the response bears fruit, some of it doesn't. And in one of these soils, he says, this, fruit doesn't bear, this seed doesn't bear fruit because of the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. In other words, some people have become so fascinated on the temporal, on the material, on this life, dealing with all the issues of life that everyone has to deal with, and they've succumbed to the deceitfulness of wealth. And so what all this has done is it's changed their focus and it's turned their focus off of God and it's focused on this other stuff that's very temporal, very material. And they become preoccupied. And so God's not able to do what he wants to do in that person's life. It's tragic 
that we can become so preoccupied with living that we miss out on living. We can get so focused on the temporal and the material and the physical that we kind of miss out on the eternal and the spiritual and the parts of life that really make a difference and make a change in our life. There's another chord that we can stay gripped by, and that's what I'll call the, co- the chord of fire. It's the chord of fire. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's talking to Timothy, and Timothy is a young pastor, um, evidently is, is having some issues in his church. Uh, evidently, there may be some maybe older members of the congregation that are giving him a hard time because he's young. Uh, so Timothy's starting to struggle a little bit, a little bit. Timothy was this on fire young man of God that Paul had mentored and trained. So he's now he's passionate. At some point, he's got this, this blazing fire in his spirit for God. But along the way, for whatever reason, things have begin to dim that fire. And now what was once a burning fire in his spirit is kind of like just a, some embers, barely a glow. And so Paul says in verse six of chapter one, he says, Timothy, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. What a great visual that is. <laughs> fan into flame, stoke that baby. I don't know what you need to do, but that fire that you once had, it's growing Fan it back into flame. You've let that fire die. Let it soar again. This is the court of fire. So what I'm trying to say here is God's calling us with this imperative. Offer to me your life so that I can do whatever I want to do through you. And don't let any of these cords of Fear or focus or fire keep you from doing that. But there's a second imperative that we see in verse two. And it's this imperative to stop being conformed and instead be transformed. Verse two, this phrase, conformed to the pattern, that phrase more literally translated, translated is quit being fit into that mold. Don't be fit into a mold any longer. Now, probably in this day, what he's referring to is um, probably molten metal where they would pour this metal, you know, into a cast or into a a mold and then it it would set and it would harden and then it would take the shape of that mold. But I have a much better illustration than that that we can all relate to. It's Plato. As you recall, I am a grandfather, pops as they call me. Got five grandkids, and they're all six years of age and younger. And all six of the, or all five of these grandkids love to play with Play Doh. Even more, they love to eat Play Doh. They love to throw Play Doh. But one thing they also really like to do is make things out of Play-Doh. And so they've got these different kind of forms that they can take this Play-Doh and then they can make different shapes with these Play-Dohs, with this Play-Doh. And of course, like with most kids, one, one shape's not enough, you know. They gotta make one and then they gotta go to the next one. And so there are a lot of times I'm just playing with all the grandkids and we're just, we're just making stuff. 
We have all these little molds and we stick it in the Play-Doh. And what's interesting is that Play-Doh takes the exact shape of these forms. Now this is, this is the picture of what Paul's talking about now. What he's saying is, do not fit into any molds. And he gives us several, or he gives us one specific mold. He says, no longer fit into the mold of this world. Now, worldly mode is, 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 is a systematic issue, if you will. It's agreeing with the world system. It's beginning to think like the world thinks. It's adopting the perspective of the world, adopting the ideologies of the world. He says, do not fit into this worldly mold. But that's not the only mold we can fit into. There's also what I'm gonna call a religious mold. It's a more subtle mold, but we can find ourselves fitting into this religious mold where we're looking the part. We're acting the right way. We're doing the right things. We're not doing the things we're not supposed to do. But it's all this religiosity, if you will. This is the mold that the Pharisees got trapped in. This is the mold that they tried to get everybody else to become trapped in. It wasn't about the heart. It was about external. It was about fitting into this religious mold. There's another mold that we have to be careful about. It's what I call the fleshly mold. The fleshly mold is all about our decadence, if I can say it that way. Scripture talks about the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. This fleshly mold is that I begin to fit into this system based on my lust of the eyes and the lust of my flesh and the pride of my life. And all, all of these things are shaping me into who I'm becoming. It's kind of the picture of Romans, 12, uh, Romans 1 when... There are those who want to live in sin. And so finally God says, okay, I'm gonna let you do that. And he just gives them over to that lifestyle. What he's actually saying is, if that's the mold you wanna live in, live in it. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying no longer conform into these molds. Stop conforming into the mold. But he gives us an option. He says, instead of being conformed, be transformed. That word literally means to be changed in form. Actually change your form. Stop being conformed and start being transformed. More accurately, stop choosing and practicing confirmation and instead start choosing and practicing transformation. But he uses a phrase here that I call a point of transition. In the text, he says, do not conform any longer in the NIV. Do not conform any longer. Stop. It's a point of transition. In other words, if this is what you've been doing, stop. And here's the great truth that we see in this passage is the point of transition leads to the point of transformation. When we reach the point of transition, now we are into the point of transformation. In other words, when I finally get to myself and say, okay, I've been conforming to whatever mold, I'm going to stop doing that. 
That's our point of transition. And now I'm in the point of transformation. And here's an even greater truth. Even if you've been conforming, you can still be transformed. Your confirmation process doesn't negate the opportunity for a transformation process. When I was playing with our, some of our grandkids one time. They, they had made a form, but instead of redoing everything, they just took a different form and they stuck that form in the form that they had already made and then reformed it. And instead of it being a fish, all of a sudden it became a cross. And I'm thinking, that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. The great news is, even if I've conformed myself to a worldly image or a religious image or a fleshly image, God's spirit can still come in me and he can transform me in the midst of that. He can take me in the midst of being conformed into that image and he can transform me into the image of himself. In other words, we're never so conformed and so hardened in that mold that God's spirit cannot come and say, hey, let's stop right here and let's begin to be transformed into the image of Christ. God's power of transformation is way more powerful than our process of confirmation if we'll choose transformation. So what we see in this passage are two imperatives. One is that we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. The other is that we would be transformed instead of conformed. But the big question I have, maybe you have it, is why would I want to do that? Why would I want to offer myself as this sacrifice? Why would I want to work so hard at being transformed instead of conformed? What what would create a desire or willingness in me to want to do that? He tells us at the very first of verse one, and it's because of God's mercy. That's the reason. He starts by saying, I urge you. That has three very distinct definitions. It can mean to encourage, exhort. Hey, come on, man, I really want you to do this. But it can also mean to beg, to plead. It's almost like he's down on his knees saying, I beg you, this is so important, you've got to do this. It also means to invite. And the idea here is, this is such a cool thing, this is such a great thing, man, come on, I'm gonna invite you to do this with me. What's he urging us to do? He's urging us to be a living sacrifice and be transformed. But in the middle of that, he says, why? In view of God's mercy. Why should I wanna do that? Because of God's mercy, that's why. There's an interesting verse in Psalm 118, 27. It says, with bows and hands, bind the festal sacrifice with ropes to the horns of the altar. Now it's referring to this brazen altar that was in front of the temple. As you would go in, you would, the priest would offer the sacrifice on this altar. It's a, it was a square. And on each corner, there, there was a horn. And those horns, that's what you would tie the sacrifice on with cords. But in this particular verse, it's not tying the sacrifice up with cords, but with bows, uh, with, with tree limbs, kind of, with, with uh, decorative floral stuff. Think of a Hawaiian lei. That's kind of the idea, okay? And the occasion, it says, is a festal 
sacrifice. In other words, it's a festival. It's a celebration. What's taking place here in this context is they're having this celebration about the goodness of God and the greatness of God. They're throwing this big party about God's goodness, and so they're offering this sacrifice, but instead of cords, they have all these bows, and it's just like a big party. It's like a big celebration. It's like streamers everywhere. That's kind of the idea, and they're celebrating. They're offering a sacrifice because of God's goodness. And this is the picture that he's painting here. Paul is painting for us. What he's saying is, why should I want to be a living sacrifice? It's because of the goodness of God. It's because of the mercy of God. What's so good about God's mercy that would make me want to celebrate? Well, it's because he's given us what we don't deserve. Here's mercy. Jude 1 says, because of mercy, we have eternal life. 1 Peter 1 says, because of mercy, we have new birth. James 2 says, because of mercy, we have triumphed over judgment. Because of mercy, we are rescued from darkness. We are placed in his glorious light. Because of mercy, we pass from death into life. Because of mercy, we have access to God. We have access to abundant life. We have access to eternal life. And without mercy, all I have left is judgment and condemnation. But because of God's mercy, I'm no longer under God's judgment. I'm no longer under God's condemnation. I've been set free from death to life, from darkness to light. What about God's mercy? I tell you, when you understand God's mercy, our reasonable act of worship is to be a sacrifice and to be transformed. It's interesting that our willingness to be a sacrifice for God, our willingness to say, God, I'm yours, do with me whatever, our willingness to have this process of being transformed into Christ's likeness, the willingness to do that is directly proportional to our understanding and appreciation of God's mercy. If I don't understand God's mercy, if I don't appreciate God's mercy, I'm not gonna offer my life to him. I, don't, I just don't understand. But when I get in my spirit the depth of God's mercy and what it has done for me, there's no other reasonable act <laughs> than to say, God, here I am. Do with me and do in me whatever you wanna do. And that's the great act of worship, is to be like Christ and to be used by Christ. It's to say, God, do with me and do in me whatever you want to do. So my encouragement this morning for all of us is the same encouragement Paul's given Timothy. Two imperatives. Because of God's mercy, offer yourself and say, Jesus, I will live for you. And offer yourself to say, God, transform me into your likeness. likeness." Maybe you're here this morning and you don't understand God's mercy. You don't appreciate God's mercy because you've never come into that relationship. 
You've never, you've never come to that point where you're said, God, I get it. I understand what you did through your son, Jesus Christ, when you offered him on the cross. And maybe right now the Holy Spirit is penetrating your heart and your spirit. You may not even understand everything that's going on inside, but it may be God's spirit penetrating your spirit right now saying, hey, let me tell you about mercy. God so loved the world that he gave his son that you wouldn't have to die. And if you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, invite him into your life, you experience God's mercy, you experience God's grace, and he will remove the penalty of sin from you. He placed it on Christ, and now you're set free. If that's you this morning, I just invite you before you leave this place that you'll say, Jesus Christ, come into my life and save me. If you wanna talk to somebody about how to do that, I'm available. We're gonna have prayer partners available here in a moment. You can talk to us. Don't leave without that. But for those others, may we listen to the imperative and let God be in us and use us for his glory. Would you bow with me? Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.